Let's join together in prayer once more. Father, as we come to hear your word, to think about what you have said, to remember that Jesus is our teacher, but not just a teacher. He is your son. He teaches us the truth. He conveys to us all that you want us to know. We pray that you might bless the things that we think about, the things I've prepared and the things we'll hear, that glory might come to his name and we might prove to be a blessing one to another. We pray this in his name now. Amen. Well, we move on to chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel this morning. And as we do, I need to set before you something that relates to what was said last week about having a heart of forgiveness toward others. And I need to make this clear because there is a sense in which this morning's hot topic does relate to what I said last week and a sense in which it doesn't relate to what I said last week. Let me clarify. On one hand, what Jesus says in our text this morning, it does relate. The topic before us this morning is divorce. Last week's topic was on forgiveness. Even forgiveness without limit. But sometimes forgiveness without limit is not the right call. Sometimes, especially in a close relationship of marriage, like marriage, where one party subjects the other to physical or sexual or verbal abuse, there is no need for unconditional, eternal, infinite forgiveness. I don't want you to have the impression from what was said last week that any of us, wives especially, should become doormats and take abuse and just constantly, continually forgive. There is a limit where God's standards expressed through sacred marriage vows are broken repeatedly. Unlimited forgiveness is not always demanded. There can be a separation. But then on the other hand, I want you to have this in mind that as we discuss this hot topic this morning about divorce, this is a new subject that Jesus is now addressing. It's not as though there's a connection in the logic of his words as if he was speaking on forgiveness and that has morphed into a discussion on divorce. Please don't think that. The topic of divorce is put to him Because after all that he said in chapter 18, chapter 19 begins with the Pharisees who come to him who are asking questions and not the disciples asking questions. And the question he is asked and he speaks on is this issue of divorce. Because the Pharisees came to him to take the opportunity to trap him into saying something that would get him into hot water. So please bear that in mind. See, when he was asked the question, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife for any cause at all, the Pharisees could not have cared less about the state of marriage in their time. Their desire was to get him involved 
in a controversy which would cause his reputation to suffer no matter what his answer was. But having said that, I also want to point out to you that Jesus was not backward in coming forward. He did not give an answer that would seek to save his reputation or cause the pressure on him to be lessened. Instead, he knew straight away where he stood. He was unafraid to answer and in doing so gave us more than a simple yes or no answer to the question before him. So with all that, with that in mind, I'd like to see three things as we look at this tricky passage this morning. First I want you to note from verses 1 and 2, let's note what Jesus was doing when the question was asked. What Jesus was doing. It's a very simple thing. Uh, These verses tell us that Jesus was in the border region of Israel, just on the other side of the Jordan, and what Jesus was doing there is important to note. Verse 2 tells us that large crowds were following him and that he healed them there. Now, why is that important to note? Simply because of this. When pressed to express his views on divorce and remarriage, Jesus is going to reveal that he had a much narrower view on the topic than the Pharisees themselves. They had a broad understanding that they could do just about anything they like. But Jesus stuck to the word of God and had a narrow view. And when anyone expresses a narrow view on anything at all, the charge that is often levelled against them is that they are uncaring and unfeeling. They don't care. The one who holds the narrow view gets put into a pigeonhole of being a narrow person and that's where they'll stay. But look at the context and you'll see that Jesus doesn't fit the narrow stereotype, does he? Where was he? He was on the other side of the Jordan among people who were not necessarily of Jewish stock. What was he doing there? Was he preaching hate? Was he going around campaigning against those who were divorced? Was he saying things that were narrow? No, he was healing people. He was meeting their physical needs. He was blessing them and he was reversing the effects of the fall. Now think on this. Were the Pharisees out there for the same reason? Were they out among the crowds meeting their needs? I think you know the answer to that. And I think you might also appreciate the fact that to be a Pharisee, you had to be married. And Jesus, of course, was not married. And yet Jesus showed a greater sense of understanding of all that God said about marriage in the book of Genesis than the Pharisees were showing in their attitudes. And we'll see that as he sets forth his teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage in the context of this question that the Pharisees asked in order to trap him. So having seen what Jesus was doing, that Jesus is busily caring for people, let's also note from verses 3 to 9 how he responded when the question was asked. 
Now it's important for you to note that the Pharisees were lax on the issues of divorce. They were liberal, that is, they were very generous. That may surprise you because your mindset might be to think of the Pharisees as legalists, as nitpickers, as those who dot every I and cross every T with regard to the law of God. So it seems kind of odd that the Pharisees who had a very lax view on marriage, divorce and remarriage would think this, but there's a reason why. Being legalists, the Pharisees paid a lot of attention to Moses' commands in Deuteronomy 22 and 24 about divorce, something they would have pulled apart and examined and built their legalist case upon, all the while in doing so overlooking the fundamental teaching which had been set forth on marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. Now that fact agrees with other estimations of the Pharisees that Jesus made. Remember how he accused them of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel? That is, of making a great deal about lesser things in the law while ignoring completely the weightier matters of the law, the obvious things in the law, particularly on these issues of marriage, divorce and remarriage. So it was these Pharisees who came to Jesus with this question in verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for, wait for it, any reason at all? For any reason at all. Behind the question, we've got some divided Pharisees also on the question of divorce. Those who followed a certain rabbi, Shammai, taught that divorce was only legitimate in the case of infidelity, adultery. On the other hand, there were those who followed Rabbi Hillel who said that divorce could occur for virtually any reason at all, even for burning the toast. Or if a man found, met a woman prettier than his wife, even then remarriage was possible. So notice the loaded nature of the question. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause at all? Why would it be phrased that way? Well, because in Jesus' day, so also in ours, most men are usually the initiators of divorce. Also in those days, a man could get a divorce quite easily and he didn't have to see a judge to get a divorce. All he had to do was have two witnesses before him, write out a bill of divorce and it was done. But if a woman wanted to get a divorce, a divorce she had to get a judge and there had to be a trial and there had to be a cause, a real cause. And so there's a real sense in which Jesus is here protecting the rights of married women in his reply. Now, in basing their opinions on divorce using Deuteronomy 24, the Pharisees were very carefully misreading it to make their argument that Moses allowed a broad range for the grounds of divorce. A broad range. But what did Jesus say in response? Well, Jesus took them back as we've seen this morning, to Genesis 1 and 2. And he effectively asked them, what is marriage for? And what did God institute marriage for? And the answer isn't hard to grasp. 
God instituted marriage in order to create a union between a man and a woman who would leave their parents, respective parents, and cleave to one another and so create a new family. And so in his response, Jesus quoted to them from Genesis 2.24 and then he added his own words, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And by doing that, Jesus taught that because God made marriage in that way and for that reason we are never in the position of lightly, flippantly, casually considering breaking up an institution which God has designed to reflect God's good design. We are not in that position to do so. We are never to take that lightly. So he turned on the tables on the Pharisees. He pointed out that in their desire to be so, so theologically correct, they actually managed to miss the main point of God's design for marriage. And he did that when the Pharisees thought that he was going to get trapped in their theological debate or that Jesus was actually going to oppose Moses by saying, well, Moses was wrong when he said such and such in Deuteronomy. But Jesus, of course, didn't do anything like that. So not to be outdone and with an attempt to gain the upper hand that they just managed to lose, they came back to him with another question based on Deuteronomy 24. But why then did Moses say, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And again, Jesus found away through that maze of a question. The matter, he said, was not that Moses gave a command that you must divorce, but there was permission for divorce and there's a big difference. A command for divorce compared for permission, it was permission to grant divorce in certain circumstances, it was a concession to the hardness of their hearts, it certainly wasn't a loophole that you could exploit to suit your own needs and desires, as the Pharisees had turned it into, overlaying as they did the original command of God with layers and layers of interpretation. Want a divorce? No problem. Here's how we understand the commandment of God in the scripture. Except, of course, when God's word was very plain and you can't get much plainer than the seventh commandment, the one about adultery, that you shouldn't do it. Now on this, the Pharisees rightly understood the requirements, but they were just a tad too keen to inflict punishment where they thought it was needed. And so in his reply, Jesus not only pointed out their complete complete failure to understand marriage, but he also gave us biblical grounds for divorce. So we hear his words of verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now here's the point where you or someone listening to this message on the podcast or on our website will be all ears to hear what comes next. Where do you think I'll land on the question of divorce? Well, fortunately, I don't have to make a choice. Our subordinate standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith 
and has already defined our position. And this is what it says. Although the corruption of man, to be such as is apt to study arguments unduly, to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. Two reasons, then, are given to biblical reasons for divorce. One of them mentioned here, adultery. And it's not that divorce must happen when adultery happens, but it certainly can happen. And why did Jesus say this? Because he's all against fun and that he's unkind and he's narrow? Not at all, because here he upheld God's good design that a man and a woman should stay together. He held a high view of marriage. And brothers and sisters, so ought you hold that high view. Third, in verses 10 to 12, let's see how the disciples responded to the answer he gave. And they were, to put it mildly, gobsmacked. They were shocked. And why were they shocked? Because they had the same attitude as their contemporaries, as the culture around them, the teachers and the Pharisees. What? And so they say, in effect, if there's no escape hatch except adultery, for us to be able to get rid of our wives whenever we need to or want to, then it'd be better to stay single, wouldn't it, Jesus? It'd be better not to be married at all. Now, this is quite out of left field, but it didn't catch Jesus by surprise, which makes me think that he gave the answers that he did, not so much for the benefit of the Pharisees, but also for the listening, learning disciples, that they might understand. So in response to their response, Jesus not only taught they ought to have a high view of marriage, but he also taught that marriage is not to be neglected, even though it puts some challenge upon us. It does require a demanding commitment, and that shouldn't surprise us or them. That's what marriage is. It requires commitment for it to work. It's a God-ordained contractual commitment between a man and a woman made in vows before man and before God. And it's hard. Adam and Eve experienced marriage in the beautiful Garden of Eden where all was perfect and there was no sinful natures getting in the way. But ever since then, every other marriage has happened outside of the Garden of Eden in a fallen world with sinful hearts. It's hard. But Jesus went on to say to his disciples that the option they suggested of singleness is harder by far. Celibacy is by no means an easier option. We're just not hardwired for it. Notice then that Jesus says there are three ways 
You can be single and celibate. You can be born that way in the sense that there's been some sort of physical deformity that keeps you from being able to have marital relations and so requires a form of singleness. There can be singleness caused by others, eunuchs being an example in many cultures. There were men who have the job of looking over the harem, the wives of the prince, and in order they might be trusted, they were emasculated. And then he spoke about a third way, dedicated singleness. That is, a decision to remain single in order to serve God and forgo the right to be married. So while Jesus pointed out that marriage is good, singleness is also a calling that requires a different kind of commitment, but still a lot of commitment, especially if the intention is to serve God as a single. And he says all this both to reject and to realign the disciples' rather shell-shocked response. Let's bring this down to something that hopefully is helpful. While Jesus' words in our text have been about divorce, that was the question that he was asked, ultimately they are much more about marriage and what it is and what it is not. It's not just some ritual of little or no significance. Words matter and words made before God and words made in public which are vows, they matter, they are serious things. Marriage matters, though it is hard. Maintaining celibacy is hard. Avoiding adultery is hard. And divorce, as much as it may not be God's ideal state, although a reality is not the ideal. Now, perhaps as we go over these things and what I've said this morning has already touched a nerve in this department for you and it's going to be hard to listen to this. I get that. Perhaps also you are struggling to survive in marriage and you need to know what it is the scriptures say. Perhaps you also need to know whatever your status, somebody cares and has a listening ear for you. I hope that is true from our end, from the elders. Given the rate of divorce is what it is, somewhere between one in two and one in three marriages, this is by no means a topic that will not affect us. So please let me make myself as clear as I can. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Failure in marriage is not an unforgivable sin. Whatever the situation you're in, whether single, married or now divorced, what Jesus' response does is encourage us all to do what we can all do to uphold the status of marriage, to honour it, to speak highly of it and to hold on to God's original design as being right and good. 
Let's do that. But while we go do that, let's not go down the path of coming hard, coming down hard on those for whom divorce has been a path that they feel they had to take. Let's not be hard. And I say that with the knowledge that this may feel like a burden that you already bear because of what the scriptures say. And I don't want to be someone who adds to that burden and withhold loving compassion to any of you who feel I was a failure at marriage. But I also want at the same time to discourage anyone who is considering for a reason outside the wiggle room in scriptures without thinking it through what Jesus said in this light. Now, because all of us matter to God as his people, all of us have a vested interest in helping one another in this whole area. So let's not sit on each other's shoulders. Let's not take the, hor- the, the higher moral ground in looking at one another. No way. We all count. If one is hurting, we all hurt. Remember the context? Jesus was out and about doing good to all. He wasn't in some ivory tower giving harsh rules. So must we also be, living out the gospel in a broken world. You win no one in the kingdom for being right when words are all you have. Especially when people, whether married or divorced or never married, are in such need and the world is full of broken relationships, left, right and centre. But here we see Jesus, on the one hand, holding fast the truth of the word of God, on the other hand, at the same time, ministering to those who are broken. I want you to hang on to that picture because it helps us from acting and being like the Pharisees. And it encourages us to be more like our Saviour who came to be the greatest by serving. Remembering what Isaiah said of him, a bruised reed he will not break. So may God help us all to get this balance right as we think about the answer Jesus gave. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that your word is truth. We glorify you for all that you said in the beginning when you brought man and woman together, Adam and Eve, and you joined them together, that first marriage, and you said that they would be one flesh. Your design is good and right. We mourn that sin entered the world and with it conflict and difficulty, especially in relation to being that one flesh. We mourn that in so many ways this world has turned God's good design upside down. And our prayer today is for one another 
as we hear what Jesus says, we don't want to sit on each other's shoulders and become each other's judges. For none of us have been in each other's shoes at all. And yet for some of us, this is hard to take in. Perhaps a marriage was broken at a time when we didn't understand or we had no other choice. Perhaps there was abuse. Perhaps there was impossible pain to deal with. We pray that you would meet whatever needs we have as we bring them to you right now. We thank you that you do not condemn us, but you forgive all our sins according to your purpose and your promise. So help us to care for one another, help us to sit and listen, help us not to be like the Pharisees who didn't care but simply wanted to put Jesus into a trap. Help us, give us the love that we've been thinking about, the care for the little ones that he taught about in chapter 18, remembering the parable of the lost sheep, so that we too might be shepherds of one another, caring for and building each other up, while at the same time holding to the truth of the scriptures. Help us to wrestle with this, as we've heard it this morning, that we might be pleasing in our response to you and to each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.